Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So I'll go ahead and announce our speaker. It's uh, Pastor Dave. He's with Ambassador Church, and he's done, uh, he's a good friend of Wilson, longtime friend. They've done uh, church planting together, and um, they've, they've done a lot of stuff like that together. And so um, he has some valuable insights he's going to share with us. I think we're looking at the Psalms this morning, so we're excited to hear about that. So let's, uh, without further ado, here's Pastor Dave. Let's welcome him up. Thank you. Let's give it up for Daniel. Isn't he funny? Oh my gosh. I just met Daniel, by the way, and uh, it has been a real delight to uh, get to know him uh, because I don't know anybody else. Actually, to be honest with you, uh, as I look out here, I don't think I know any of you. Wilson actually took the leadership, and I know a lot of the leadership, but Again, I don't know you, and so what I usually do when I don't know people is I like to break the ice right away, and so I like to share a little bit about myself. I like to be a little bit vulnerable, so please don't laugh at me, don't make fun of me, but let me share a little bit about myself. My name is Dave Jung. Uh, I'm pastor, actually, or one of the pastors at Ambassador. Uh, I have uh, done church planting before, so I know how difficult it is, and so I am very, very blessed to see uh, you at Renew Church uh, and your first year doing so well. Uh, let's give you guys a hand too. Yay! Awesome, awesome. And I am I'm I'm so blessed to be able to be a part of uh, what's happening here. Just even in speaking the message and giving you encouragement from the Word of God. I have a wife and I have a ten-year-old daughter. Uh, my wife's name is Joanne. She couldn't be here. So because she's not here, let's talk about her a little bit, okay? Uh, <laughs> my wife, Ashley, and I have been married for 20 years. Oh, let's give a hand for that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> 20 years. And uh, I remember, actually, it was love at first sight. Now, those of you that are married, are there any married people here? Okay. A couple. Was yours love at first sight? Would you raise your hand? Your meeting, love at first Oh, none? I'm surprised, Okay. Because I believe at love at first sight. As a matter of fact, I was a pastor doing a retreat, and there was a team member, actually, and I'd never met her before. Her name was Joanne, and when I saw her, I fell in love with her immediately. I knew that that person was the one. As a matter of fact, later on, on our first date, I told her I loved her on the first date. I mean, talk about Valentine's, right? That's, I mean, and I never, I don't say I love you to everybody, okay? But, but I knew it, okay? And I come from the Midwest, and so... Uh, growing up with white people all my life, right? Asian women weren't uh, that way toward... Uh, I, I didn't feel that way toward Asian women. I always saw them as my sister or something. But when I saw her, oh my gosh, I didn't want her to be my sister, okay? I really wanted her to be my wife. But I was up at a retreat, okay? So I didn't want to act like I was hitting on somebody because I was the retreat person. I was the main guy. And so it doesn't look good, right, when you're hitting on people at a retreat. And so I was trying to think, how do I get to know this person? Well, she sent me an encouragement card towards the end of the retreat. And when I got that encouragement card, I got so excited. I went to my room. I sat on the bathroom, okay, on the toilet, and just to read the card. And I started reading it. And you know what? It said a bunch of spiritual things like, Pastor Dave, thank you for you know, your spiritual leadership, and thank you for loving God, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? But I wanted it to say so much more. So I kept reading it, right? And it didn't say what I wanted to say. So what I did was I wrote her an encouragement card of my own, okay? And I said all the things that kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff that I wanted to say. And uh, tell me if this is too forward, but on the front of the card it says, know what, 
God's not the only one that loves you. Is that pretty good? Yeah? Okay, okay. Okay, let me read it to you, okay? And I'm going to be vulnerable, so don't make fun of me, okay? Do not make fun of me, but this is what I wrote, okay? Tell me if you would get the hint, okay, that I liked her. It said, Dear Joanne, just a little note to thank you for everything you've given at this retreat. And I am sorry if I went overboard and teased you too much. I guess I felt a little shy, and I didn't know how to act when I was around you. It's funny, but you're the only person who has ever made me feel this way. Smiley face. Weird, huh? Well, I know that I was truly blessed at this retreat, and I feel I've made some wonderful discoveries. I hope this experience was eye-opening for you as well. In Christ's love, Dave Jung. P.S. I hope to see you in the near future. Hey, maybe we can do something sometime. My schedule is totally free. Is that good? Let's give a hand for that one. Yay! Single guys, feel free to use this, okay? It works because I nabbed my woman. We've been married 20 years, okay? That's awesome, right? But I know and you know that love letters mean a lot. As a matter of fact, I've kept this thing for 20 years, right? 20 uh, plus years. And love letters are something that really, really kind of resonate with us, right? It, it tickles our emotions. It, it makes us excited. Well, I believe that what you have in your lap is a love letter. The Word of God is a love letter from God Almighty. Amen? The Lord Jesus has given you that. And I make a thorough habit every time I get a new Bible. In the beginning, I put, Dear David, and in Revelation, I put, Love Jesus Christ. Because I always want to take the Word of God as a love letter for me. It's not just some dry, dusty textbook. It's not something that we just kind of read for academic purposes. It is truly God's love for us written so that we might be able to obey, so that we might be able to be encouraged, so that we might be able to be instructed in his love. Amen? Amen. So, without any further ado, turn into your love letters to Psalm chapter 23. Would you do that? Psalm chapter 23. And I want to discuss for you the greatest song of all time. This morning, I want us to look at the greatest song of all time. We know that God's love letter to us has many genres. It has narrative, right? It has apocalyptic literature. It has gospels. Well, here we see in the genre of psalms the idea of song. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at, I believe, the greatest song of all time. Psalm chapter 23. And the word psalm literally in the Hebrew means song, right? It's a song to God. Now, you might ask me, why is this the greatest song of all time? Well, number one, because this is a divine song, right? Psalm 23 is divinely inspired by God. Second uh, Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, right? So that Psalm 23 had a human author, David, the king of Israel. But God breathed his very ideas into this song. And so David is the instrument. He's the singer-songwriter. But God superintends the writing so that it expresses what God desires us to hear. So number one, it's a divine song. But number two, this is the greatest song of all time because of what it promises. Many of you sitting here, I don't know you, but I know one thing, that you're probably facing issues, problems, and trials in your life. Because all of us face those things. I don't know if you're facing an issue where you have a loved one that has a debilitating illness, cancer. Or, or such. Maybe right now you're dealing with a loved one that has just passed away. 
And there are issues there, physical issues that you face. If not physical issues, maybe uncertainties. Some of you are facing the uncertainties of life right now. And you're wondering, how am I going to continue after I just lost my job? I didn't expect this thing to occur, but yet it has happened. And so you're facing uncertainties. And if you're facing trials, then what comes with trials is also fears. We live in fearful times. We can turn on the television and we see threats uh, of ISIS. We see threats from the Taliban. We look and we see all these issues and problems that are, are facing our world. And it makes us fearful. Not only that, but we turn on the local television, right? And what do we see? We see local problems that are happening. Crime. Uh, 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 all kinds of different uh, issues like corruption or recession. And when we look at those things, it fills us with fear. I'll never forget what Katie Couric, one of the great anchors of our generation, said. And she said this, actually, in all honesty, uh, on the rise of terrorism. She said, I'm filled with so much anxiety as I live in the 21st century. And you just have to keep from becoming fatalistic. You have to just hope that good can triumph over evil. Now, I appreciate what Katie Couric said. But can I share with you, Psalms 23 promises us so much more than just wishful thinking. Amen? Psalm chapter 23 promises us better than what the world kind of, kind of, kind of things. Like, just, let's, just, let's just pray and hope that something good can happen. Just like it's a nebulous kind of feeling. Psalm 23 rather gives us concrete influence to look at life from the perspective of a child of God. And so let's look at the greatest song of all time, and I want to first of all look at it in its context. When was it written? You see, when we read the song, uh, the song in its entirety, we get a sense of great optimism. We get a beautiful, sunny song. And because of that, we think of David writing this at a good time in his life. Here he has his family around him, his wife looking at him adoringly, his children seated uh, wanting to listen to his wisdom. We see a healthy, happy home and a healthy, happy nation when Israel is at its most prosperous. That's what we picture when we think of Psalm chapter 23. But nothing could be further from the truth. If we look at its historical context, 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 18, I want you to notice that here we see David as an elderly king. He's been king for a very long time. And what happens in the context is his son Absalom, whom he dearly loved, did the most despicable thing that a son could do to his father. This bright, beautiful, charismatic man would go into the marketplace and secretly campaign to be king. And he would secretly gather support from the officials of the court of David without David knowing. And he, and he ends up winning over the top advisor, what we would think of as the secretary of state to the nation of Israel, this man by the name of Ahithophel to betray David. And so Absalom makes an excuse, asks his father if he could go to Hebron to offer sacrifices, and as he's gone, he musters all of his support. And with soldiers pledging their allegiance and authority for Absalom, he publicly proclaims himself king. 
And as he gathers the support of Ahithophel and those generals that are loyal to him, he has an overwhelming army that now he marches to go to kill and depose his father, David. All of a sudden, David is forced to flee into the wilderness. And the wilderness is where he used to hide, if you remember, from King Saul long ago. But now David is an old man. He's not young anymore. There's a saying, have you ever heard this? The older you get, the scareder you get. The older you get, the scareder you get. And it's so true. Because when you're old, everything seems fearful to you. You don't have the strength or the vitality. You don't have the stamina or the confidence that you had in your youth. And as an old man, every fear is being realized. The fear of rejection. Because the son whom he loved, the advisor whom he trusted, the people whom he ruled have have rejected him. The fear of ridicule, that everywhere he flees, people mock him and curse him. The fear of failure, that he lost everything instantly, without warning. In a split second, one minute he's on the throne, the next he's fleeing for his life in the wilderness. The fear of destruction, that his son, Absalom, and Israel's army are hunting him down like some wild animal to kill him. This is when he writes the lyrics to the song, and he starts off in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Can I get an amen? Amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. David says that because God is his shepherd, he doesn't need anything else. (laughs) What in the world, David? In light of all that's going on right now, how can you actually say this? It's because David focuses not on his fears. David focuses on on who his shepherd is. I want you to notice the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This word is the name for God. It means self-sufficient, self-sustaining, utterly independent. It means sovereign God. It's the same word that God uses when he gives Moses this at the burning bush. He says, I am. I am. I'm completely sovereign. And here David acknowledges who he is in light of this divine shepherd. He says he's a sheep. Now, I've done icebreakers before. I've worked with college ministries, and you know, um, college students are near and dear to my heart. And so anytime we do an icebreaker, there's one that's very popular. It's name what kind of animal you are, right? Characteristically, right? What kind of animal are you, right? And right now, it's the year of the monkey. It's actually my year, okay? 1968, it's the year of the monkey. But Usually when we do these things, uh, people who do the icebreakers always share something great. I always like to share like monkey or lion. I like to look like a lion, right? Because I'm majestic, right? I have nice hair, right? I'm very, very commanding. That's what I like to kind of show to everybody. And everybody picks animals like that, cute animals or loving animals or fearful animals. They like to do that. I have never in my time doing this icebreaker have anybody say, say to me, I'm like a domesticated sheep. That's who I am. I've had nobody tell me, I'm a lot like a sheep. Do you know why? Because sheep are fundamentally stupid, okay? Meaning that if you leave them out in a, in a pasture, if you leave them without any superintendence, if you just leave them without a shepherd, they will die, If you leave them right out here, right, a coyote would get them every time. Why? Because sheep, by their very nature, are utterly dependent creatures. 
And this is what the Bible says human beings are likened to. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep, right, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. So many run from the shepherd thinking that they don't need him, but not David. Here he makes a fundamental admission. I'm a sheep who desperately needs a shepherd. And so David realizes that if God is my shepherd, if I have a relationship with God where he shepherds me, then I don't need anything else. Now, why is that true? Well, because in verse 2, look at it. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. This is fascinating. In the Hebrew language, the emphasis of this verse is not on the locational noun, but it's on the descriptive adjective. So that let me say this in Hebrew, that this shepherd makes me lie down in pastures green. Okay, This shepherd leads me beside waters quiet. The emphasis is not on the noun, it's on the adjective, green and quiet. Now, why is that so? Do me a favor, would you? Put your hand on your head. Would you do that right now? Just put your hand on your head, okay? We are taking off our Dodger baseball cap. How many of you are Dodger fans? How many of you are Angel fans? Keep your hand on your head, okay? All right, I want you to take it off, whatever fan you are of whatever team. Take it off right now. Come on now, okay? Now, I want you to put on now the Hebrew Sudra. Okay, that's the shepherd's headdress. Can you put it on? We are taking off the 21st century understanding of this, and we're putting on the ancient understanding of a shepherd. We have to do this because in this idea of interpretation, we can't look at it from our 21st century lens, right? We have to look at it from the ancient lens. It's important because, listen to this, okay, and you all have it on, by the way, right? We read this verse and we think, make me lie down. Okay, Caesar Milan, dog whisperer, right? What does Caesar Milan tell us to be? The pack leader, right? So we have to go and make it lie down, okay? German shepherd, lie down, right? Bulldog, lie down, right? You can't do that in a first century, in an ancient a Bedouin context when it comes to sheep, okay? Listen to this. You can't force a sheep to lie down. Did you know that? You can't force a sheep to drink. You can't force a sheep to lie down because it'll just look at you with that stupid look and bah, just do what it wants to do, okay? The hardest thing to do is to force a sheep to lie down because it will not relax. It will not rest. Here's my point. All the conditions have to be met in order for that sheep to feel a sense of security, to feel freedom from frustration. It's at that time that a sheep will lie down. And so the ancient Near East shepherd actively looks for the perfect place, for the pastures that are green, to go and remove all the hindrances and obstacles and dangers so that the sheep can lie down. You see, sheep won't drink from a running stream. You know why? They're scared of running streams. They will bah, look at you and not drink. And so what the shepherd has to do is he has, has to actively manipulate the stream. He has to design and arrange dams so that they bind up. He has to create and find still pools so that it will be still enough for the sheep to feel like drinking. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Imagine a shepherd having to do all that work, and yet that is what God our shepherd does. Amen? My God actively, personally is involved in my life preparing the green pastures, preparing the quiet streams. And he cares for me 
even in the details of my life. You see, Jesus says it this way. He says, don't worry. And why not? Why are we not to fear or worry? He says, consider the lilies. They're insignificant, yet God clothes them. Don't worry. Why? Consider the ravens. They're insignificant, yet God feeds them. Don't fear. Why? Consider the sparrows. They're insignificant, yet God pays attention to them. Why are we not to fear, Jesus? Jesus says, consider the very hairs of your head. They're insignificant, yet God numbers every one of them. The argument is from lesser to greater. If God cares for insignificant things like hair and lilies and sparrows, won't he actively, intimately care even for that which is more significant, like his loving children? You see, David declares that since God is that kind of shepherd to him, verse 2, he restores my soul. Look at verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Here David points out that God guides him, and the word is right paths. It really means right paths. You see, today when we think of a wilderness, right, in our 21st century contemporary mindset, we think of Angeles Crest Forest. We think of fun campouts, right? But in the land of Israel, if we look at the topography of Israel, the wilderness was nowhere that you want to camp out. It was an extremely dangerous place. I've had friends that actually went to Israel. They've had guides to take them into the wilderness. The reason why they had guides to take them is because you could be walking safe and secure one second and fall off a hundred-foot cliff the next second. It is totally treacherous where you don't know where those, uh, those dangerous places would be. As a matter of fact, in 1 Samuel 18, when the armies of David and Absalom finally meet in the wilderness, the Bible says the battle took the lives of 20,000 men, mostly Absalom's men. And this is what it says in verse 8 of 18. Just listen carefully. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the wilderness claimed more lives that day than the sword. What is the Bible saying? It's saying that Absalom's men didn't know the right paths. And so that battle, 20,000, mostly Absalom's forces, plummeted to their deaths because they didn't understand the ways of the wilderness. David was a shepherd. David understood the wilderness. And when he says, my God shepherds me, he knows the right paths. He knows the ways that are secure and righteous, the ones I need to walk, walk on. I can be safe and secure in that. You see, so many paths in life lead to destruction, don't they? There are so many paths that will make us a failure in life if we go down them. And life is choices, right? And we're finite, fallible human beings. We can only see what's front, in front of us. We can't see the beginning from the end. That's why the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, right? In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. Amen? We need a GPS for life. We need a God-positioning satellite that God knows the beginning from the end so that he can guide us into that which will make us successful. You see, David acknowledges that if I follow this shepherd, that's all I need. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. In this context, David is in a dangerous, treacherous place. He's in the valley of the shadow of death. He and his party are completely vulnerable in the wilderness. 
As a matter of fact, Absalom and his advisor Ahithophel are hunting him down. Again, let me read from 2 Samuel chapter 17. This is verse 2, what Ahithophel advises Absalom to do. Listen to this. I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak, and I would strike him with, and here's the word, terror. Did you know that's the exact same word that is used for fear in verse 4? I will not, David says, be terrorized by evil. You see, David proclaims that he doesn't fear evil. That, that doesn't mean that evil doesn't, uh, uh, isn't present, right? That doesn't mean that danger isn't lurking around every corner. David knows well that he's in the valley of the shadow of death. But here's the point. God doesn't erase the evil that is present in our lives. Whatever trial, whatever uncertainty, whatever issue that you have, you wish you would just go away, but that's not how life works. And God doesn't take us out of those things. But what he does is, he lets us know that he's there in the midst of those trials. Amen? He simply shows us how we can focus on him. I watched the Discovery Channel uh, episode once about uh, ancient shepherds, and they still do this today, and I thought it was so cool. When a wolf tries to come in and separate the flock, basically they try to scatter the sheep so they can pick off right, the youngest or the most infirmed one. Right? They're looking to do that. What the shepherd does when a wolf comes into the flock in the ancient Near East is they'll stand on top of a rock and they'll make a call. Okay? And I was watching Discovery Channel and they made this, these calls, right? these weird calls. The shepherd knows the sound of the, or the sheep know the sound of the shepherd's voice, and what they will do instead of scatter, they'll do what is counterintuitive to them. They will actually close ranks. So imagine the wolf comes in desiring to scatter, but here the shepherd's call makes the sheep come closer, and it actually traps the wolf so that the shepherd go, could go and dispatch the predator. Isn't that awesome? You gotta watch Discovery Channel. But that's what happens, right? Where we see that. David is choosing, listen, not to fear the wolf. He's choosing rather to focus the entirety of who he is on the shepherd, to listen to his voice, to watch the signals of the shepherd. And when we do that, we find great confidence. When we fix our eyes on the shepherd and not our situation. Is that where you are today? Are you focusing on the situation or are you focusing on the shepherd? Even in the most terrifying and terrorizing of circumstances, I can find comfort. Why? Well, verse 4, look at it. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The tools of an ancient Near East shepherd, one was the rod. It was an 18-inch club, okay? And it was used, and many times it actually had a sharp point at the end and a ball at the other end. And what it was used, it was to kill predators so they could protect the sheep. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the euphemism that Israel was protected by God was that all of the people passed under the rod. The rod was there to protect the people. Not only that, the staff, and we've seen staffs before, a shepherd's staff, was a long rod with a crook on the end. And that was used to guide the sheep, to get them out of trouble, Right? And here, David says his comfort is found in God's active protection, God's active deliverance in dangerous places, which he is there now. Let's look in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
Now, did you ever read that and think, that's the strangest passage? I don't understand that. Raise your hand if you ever read that and thought, man, how weird is that? Okay, the rest of you know, right? So I don't have to explain it, right? No, okay, listen to me. I read this and I'm like, it's because I had my baseball, my Dodgers cap on, right? And I'm not putting on the headdress. In ancient times, okay, we've got to understand that when a Bedouin opened his tent to you, when he set a meal before you, he was making a statement. When I was in junior high, okay, in seventh grade, I had eighth grade uh, bullies that would always try to inflict pain upon me, okay? And I remember the first few weeks of school really tough because these eighth graders would chase us, me and my friends, and they would stick our heads in the toilet. I think they call them swirlies, right? They would give us swirlies. They would do all kinds of mean things to us, okay? Well, one time we were walking to our class. We saw these eighth graders, okay? And I remember those eighth graders. I'm still bitter, okay? And they, were, they saw us, and immediately, right, the, the predator, prey kind of thing kicked in. So we ran into the bathroom. That's the worst place you could go, right? Because there's no, nowhere else but the toilet, right? But we ran into the bathroom because we were seventh graders, right? So we ran in there, and the eighth graders were still behind. And right away, instinctively, I saw Brett. Now, Brett was a, was a ninth grader, okay? He's a football player, a wrestler. For some reason, he liked me. We were friends, okay? So I'm a seventh grader. He's a ninth grader. I ran in. We saw Brett. And so me and my friends, we actually hid behind Brett as he was washing his hands in the bathroom, okay? These three eighth graders came in. And when they saw, okay, and they thought their mouths were watering when they came in because they thought, oh, we're going to destroy these uh, seventh graders. But when they came in, the look of fear that they had in their eyes as we stood behind Brett and I picked up on that right away. I'm smart, okay? So I picked up on that. So I started going, what? What's up, man? What you gonna do? You know, and I started kind of, you know, try, and they never came near us. They actually went out of the bathroom. Do you know why? It wasn't because they were scared of me. They were scared of Brett. It's the same idea here that's found in Scripture. If a Bedouin opened his tent to you, if he placed a meal before you, he was saying to everyone in that area, these people are my friends. These people are near and dear to me, and if you're going to make war with them, you got to go through me first. If you're going to do anything to harm them, you got to go through me first. That's what David is saying. If God is fighting my battles, what have I to fear? What have I to worry? He was sending a message here that God is my protection. Amen? Verse 5, look at it. You anoint my head with oil, my cup. Here's another weird one, okay? What does that mean? Well, in the contemporary culture, if I came and I took olive oil and I poured it on your head, would you feel blessed? Would you say, oh, thank you, you know? Would you, no, you wouldn't. You'd get mad at me, okay? But in this desert culture, ancient desert culture, do you know oil was considered extremely precious? It was used for hygiene. It was used to clean pores from the desert sand. It was used medicinally to treat sunburn and chap lips. It was used to heal dry skin. It was a balm. It was used cosmetically for perfumes. And so oil was very, very precious. And if somebody were to pour oil all over you, they were sending a message. Water was very precious, okay? And we kind of understand that. We kind of live in a desert culture where water, rain is not an annoyance to us. Rain is a blessing to us, right? We get excited about rain because we don't get it that much. And so if a person were to pour water in your cup and let it overflow, you wouldn't be annoyed with that. That was a message that that person was sending to you. If a desert dweller poured oil to excess, if he poured water to excess, he was making a statement of how important you are to him. 
He was making a statement that I want to lavish you, that I want to heap upon you my favor. You see, God not only cares for you, he sees you as his most precious possession. Child of God, this is something that we can take to heart, even this morning, that God loves you with extravagant favor. Can I get an amen? Now, how do I know this? Verse 6, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I'm blown away by this. I love this passage because here David, in the midst of his terror and trials, is saying goodness and love are all around me. How do I know this? Because God is his shepherd. Because of all the things that we've read so far, God sovereignly leads him. God is intimately at work in meeting his needs. God guides him in the right paths so that he'll succeed. God protects him by fighting his battles. God lavishes favor upon him. The Lord is completely and utterly surrounding him and involved in his life. And this is the greatest promise of all. You know, we've been talking about perspective. Here we see in verse 6, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, David fixes his focus not on earthly situations, but he's fixing it on his heavenly home forever with the Lord. And my friend, that's how we can deal with fear in our lives. That's the reason why we can manage difficulty in our specific situation. It's the reason why we can handle uncertainty. Because we can say like David, I don't have to look at this current problem. I can look toward eternity because that's what God has in store for me. See, David is not looking at the here and now. David is looking at eternity. And you know what? That is something that we can proclaim to everyone around us, because the world right now is cowering in fear. The world right now sees this life as so precious, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. But you know what the Bible tells us? That life is like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Life is a drop in the bucket compared to all of eternity. Why do we focus so much on the here and now when God has an eternity that he has set aside for us to live and to bask in? Amen? This is what this song represents to us. Let me ask you this. Does this song motivate you? This morning, does it inspire you? That if you have the shepherd, you have all you need. Verse 2, he leads me from the front. Verse 3, he guides me from behind. Verse 4, he is walking by my side. Verse 5, as I glance, uh, as I look ahead, I see his provision. Verse 6, as I glance behind, his goodness and love are following me, and I have all eternity to share with him. Bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. David is emphasizing emphasizing through verbs and prepositions, through the lyrics of this song, that the shepherd surrounds you in his perfect love. There is nothing better. There is nothing better than to express our love back to him. And we're going to give you the opportunity to do that. If we can have the praise team come up, we are going to have the Lord's Supper. This was instituted by God. It was started and commanded by Jesus as a way to remember the love that Christ has for us, to remember God's ultimate plan of salvation for us, that when we take of the bread, it symbolizes the body that was broken for you. When we drink of the cup, we are saying that Jesus' blood cleanses us 
from all, of unri- from all unrighteousness. I want you as you take of the cup, as you partake of the bread, to remember that Jesus is your shepherd and that you have nothing to worry about as you live on this earth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.